0: Welcome along, everybody. It's another Leaders Performance Podcast. My name is David Cushnan, Head of Content here at Leaders. With me, as always, John Porch, lead writer at the Leaders Performance Institute. John, how are you doing? Not too bad, David. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. We are pushing ahead with another archive episode of the podcast, and we're going back a couple of years to our event in New York.
1: That's right. 2016 at the Time Center. And for this particular session, David, uh, we welcomed on stage Sean Hulls, who is the Director of High Performance at the Philadelphia Eagles, who of course won Super Bowl 52 in February. And Sean was joined on stage by Phil Coles, who is the Head of the Athletic Department at the NBA San Antonio Spurs.
0: And what was the thrust of the conversation, John?
1: Well, the topic of the day was injury prevention and rehab at elite sports organisations, and uh, It's quite an interesting chat, actually, because they both come from different high-performance backgrounds. Sean uh, has a military background himself, and Phil worked at soccer and rugby in Australia and England before venturing across to the States to the NBA.
0: Anything else we need to know at this stage?
1: Well, the pair explain why athletes and coaches are often responsible for
0: the injuries that occur to to themselves and their athletes, but that need not be the case, as they explain in due course. Moderating this session, Dave Hancock, performance consultant and friend of Leaders, We'll go back to New York 2016 shortly. But, John, I know you're keen to know the latest about Chicago 2018 because it's happening next week as we record. Uh, 10th and 11th of July at Soldier Field. We know uh, we're looking forward to uh, many of you joining us uh, there. It's not too late to sign up. You can check out all the details at leadersinsport.com. We've got a terrific lineup. Kyle Dubas, the general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs, Uh, Ben Charrington, VP of Baseball Operations at the Toronto Blue Jays, San Francisco 49ers, EVP of Football Ops, Parag Marath, author of The Ego is the Enemy, Ryan Holiday, Marty Lawson, the Director of Sports Performance and Medicine at the Atlanta Falcons, and author Owen Slott, he authored The Talent Lab. Uh, among many others, uh, joining us uh, on stage in Chicago next week. And also joining them, hot off the press, Cecilia Clark, mental performance coach at the Cleveland Indians. She's one of the key operators within the team's performance psychology. Division. She's been at the Indians since 2014 and she's uh, going to provide a fascinating insight into uh, what they're doing at the Indians uh, and also her past life as cognitive performance coach at Fort Bragg with the Army Centre for Enhanced Performance. I think there are plenty of reasons to attend. I'm sure you agree, John. Absolutely, David. www.leadersinsport.com for all the details of how to be there. And you can follow along uh, via our social accounts and also uh, via the Leaders Performance Institute Knowledge Hub uh, throughout the week and beyond as we bring you a flavour of events in Chicago. Right, that's for next week. Uh, Let's scoot back in time now to New York 2016 and what promises to be a fascinating session.
1: So we're gonna talk about injury and rehabilitation of athletes, something that is obviously prevalent in our different chosen sports and areas that we work in. So the first thing I wanted to ask you guys was, you've worked in different disciplines How has your, over those years of working in those disciplines, how has your thought process and theory changed? So I think if we start with you, Sean, I'm particularly interested in your military working with the Navy Seals and then moving into college football and then obviously into professional NFL. Let's kick that off with you, Sean.
2: Yeah, I started in a uh, kind of almost like came from a place of privilege. I started at the University of Nebraska where there was a very formal proven program that had had a lot of success in the 90s and I kind of came in during that time there and uh, um, but with that everything was in place there wasn't a lot of manipulation of programs or anything there was a system there and and So you just kind of followed the system and then I went from there to a really small um, historically black school Hampton University where now Uh, I really had to be, I didn't have the resources that I had when I was at the University of Nebraska, so I had to dip into being resourceful and trying to implement this program that was expected because they had brought this guy in from Nebraska. And um, from there, I uh, uh, went on to to the military and kind of found myself in the same situation where the the SEAL teams had, had issues with a lot of orthopedic injuries. A lot of their injuries had happened working out, like 60% of the, the orthopedic injuries had happened while working out. So the commander of the team uh, wanted to change that and wanted to bring someone in that was from a consistent basis to build a program that was uh, that was homegrown within the, uh, the SEAL team. So um, doing that and just having a lot of exposure to uh, Different ways of training coming from primarily a, a football background and, and doing wrestling and those sorts of things to now trying to, you know, devise a plan to cover all the different aspects of a SEAL. It's uh, really opened me up in terms of uh, kind of leaning back on that resourcefulness, opened me up to different ways of training and, and different methods and methodologies. And, uh, and then being able to quantify that it's a lot different transferring into into that arena from a sports arena where you don't have those clear-cut wins and losses so being able to quantify that and at the individual level and then uh, and and that's kind of uh, the direction that we we took it when when i first was brought into uh, philadelphia by chip can you give us an example from your from the military that you took in
1: something that you picked up with you learned with regard how you could affect a program in the NFL from your experiences working with the seals
2: yeah I think I think what there's a couple of things that that are really really unique to that population that people don't realize they see like the movies and all those things but really what um, I think you, you have to look back at almost like the genesis story of the of the teams and one it's how they're selected and part of that selection is is really it, any seal will tell you they're not the best athlete. They're not. I mean, Jeff that spoke. I mean, he's going to tell you that. Um, uh, it's just guys that really uh, deal with failure well, and and there, you'll see guys that come in that are just like rock stars at at buds at uh, at the at the selection um, uh, uh, boot camp, and they're doing really really well, and then for the first time in their life they're. They're, they're failing and it's designed to make people fail. And before long, a lot of times those guys wash out, they quit. And so basically the guys that make it through are the guys that can deal with that failure and keep pushing and figure out ways to work around those, those problem sets. And those skill sets then are kind of transferred once they get to the teams. They, they become experts at, at becoming experts. They're going from one course to another, learn how to jump out of airplanes, and shoot, and drive, and all these things. And guys really, um, you know, these courses are pretty short, but they, they have really uh, refined the learning process. And I think that was something that I took from there, was that same mentality of always just uh, trying to figure out first, you as a person, how do you learn? How can you uh, um, really maximize your time and uh, maximize your effectiveness and contribute to the cause? And, and everyone just kind of falls into line there. So that, I would say that was something that I really learned uh, there was, was uh, uh, one of the big sayings there is, is adversity uh, introduces uh, a man to himself, and then you introduce that man to the team. And uh, um, I think that being immersed in that, that, that environment was something that probably changed how I looked at uh, how I work with athletes now, for sure.
1: Great. And Phil, you came originally from rugby in Australia, and then you moved into f- football or soccer for the Americans in the audience. Um, you moved then to Australian national team, then to Liverpool, and then to basketball. So in that journey, what, what's, what, what has changed in your view of injury and rehabilitation?
3: Um, a lot. I mean, you're always evolving. Uh, firstly, please, if you can't understand me, sing out, and I'll repeat myself. I know I have an accent. I tend to mumble. I plan to speak slowly and professionally, but based on the advice of the last speaker, then, you know, who gives a shit? I'll just talk the way I want. <laughs> <laughs> Try to be honest. Um, so I'm a physio by trade. Um, obviously, started in, in professional rugby league, which was a sport that I grew up with and that, that I played. Um, had the opportunity to move to, to professional soccer in the UK, um, starting with a lower division club. Um, different, you know, you evolve straight away because you're dealing with different body types, you're dealing with different culture, you know, country and sporting culture, um, you're dealing with different scheduling, different training methodologies. Um, and that was, you know, the approach that I had always been used to. You know, evolved a lot there. When I moved then into working for the national team, and I was full time with our national team for for four years, and essentially I was based in the UK, but with Australian players, been all around Europe, you know, Germany, Holland, Turkey, Italy, uh, and England, obviously. Um, I was consulting independently to all those different clubs where Australian players were, and working with the individual Australian clubs. And really, for me, that was the key part of my uh, development because it, it meant that I saw, you know, I had a really unique experience with seeing so many different clubs. I mean, they're all football clubs, they're all soccer clubs. Um, but seeing how they all worked, how the different staff worked together in those clubs, how different approaches were taken, and, and probably, you know, you're also, you know, you also learning yourself about your own skills and, and probably what I learned is that there's a lot of different ways to do things. Um, there's a lot of different, different approaches that can be successful. And so you know, in, in your own personal development, you come out of university and you work for a while and you go back into a masters and you work for a while and you feel like you know a hell of a lot. And then you realize the further you go in your career that you don't know all that much uh, and there's so many different approaches, uh, some of which are very successful and some of which aren't. Um, so you sort of get over yourself to the point where you realise, okay, it's, there's a lot of different approaches to things. Uh, and it's about finding the right approach with the right group of people that you're with at that time. Um, when I went to Liverpool, it was more into, uh, I was still working as a physical therapist, but it was more of a management role in the medical department, trying to set up new structures and trying to evolve or, or modernise the way they were working at the time and that brings challenges when you go to a very, you know, historically very successful club and, and you know, with a mandate to make change and challenges that are difficult when you're getting changes of ownership and changes, changes of coaching staff, uh, you know, during that period um, but it was, it was a great learning environment for me in terms of leadership. You know, and I certainly made lots of mistakes that I think I've been able to improve when I've gone on since then. Um,
1: can you give us an example?
3: It's probably, I mean, you can make mistakes day to day with managing yeah, a particular injury. Yeah, there might be a newer methodology that you can do differently with an individual player. But I think it's more about managing people and managing personalities and you know, I think there was times you know, in the past that maybe I've been too quick to want to impart my particular approach to a, a problem on someone else whose background and philosophy is different and therefore there's ended up being a, a, a clash or it hasn't been, you know, someone's tried to adopt my philosophy but if they don't really believe it, it's not going to work. You know? So I've learned now to try and get more from the people that I'm working with about their philosophy and then explain my philosophy and then work out where we can find a common ground in the middle and move forward, not with what I necessarily think is the very best way to do it, but what is the best way for us to do it together. Um, and yeah, from Liverpool I actually went home, uh, back to professional rugby league, and I'd been in football for, for nearly ten years, you know, seven years in Europe. I went back to Australia, to my hometown, because I had the opportunity to, to go into another I guess leadership role over the, the medical and performance team as a whole, or the high performance unit, um, and was happily back in Australia and, and you know back in my hometown and two young kids and planned planned on staying until uh, the, the Spurs contacted me and, and talked to me about coming to work in basketball, and it wasn't a challenge that I was seeking out, um, but you know once I spoke to the the guys at the Spurs and once I learnt more about their history and their organisation, and more importantly, about the weather in San Antonio. <laughs> um, yeah, seven years in Europe was enough of the cold. So, yeah, I, I came out here and... And the lack of taxes. Yeah, that helps as well. Helps, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I came out to San Antonio and in a role, again, trying to bring together the medical department, the sports science department, the athletic development department, and, and create a high performance atmosphere, a high performance unit, you know, entertainment has been incredibly successful for a long period of time.
1: Okay, so going on from that, when we're talking about structure, and obviously you know, one of our goals is obviously, when I first came to the States, I found that there was a big divide between the strength and conditioning departments in clubs and teams and colleges, and the training department. And sometimes they didn't even communicate with each other what the left hand and the right hand were doing completely different. And I think over time that's changing. So when you look at structure and the specific objectivity that you have to really prevent injury first. Sean, give us some ideas about what you've done and what you've implemented in in that and the fact that you actually don't answer necessarily to the coach that you're actually brought in by the franchise and looked after directly with the GM and the owners, which I think is another interesting, a uh, lot of teams around the world are doing this now, that you don't have to worry too much about the coach getting fired that you're thinking you're gonna lose your job. So. Can you can you talk more about the objectivity, the specifics really to prevent injury and return to play sort of criteria?
2: Yeah, I think <clears throat> there's a few things with that. Uh, I mean, structure dictates function, right? So um, just take me back to my experience, that was something that was really unique in the SEAL teams is almost being there um, during one of their major growth periods and, and really during the, the, the phases of the war in Iraq and, and Afghanistan where there was this big surge. And uh, kind of what Jeff was alluding to yesterday where the hierarchical model of, of um, disseminating information was no longer, in order to defeat those networks, they had to create those, create networks. And, and I think that's what uh, coming to the organization um, at the Eagles, uh, um, kind of installing a similar model of really breaking down the walls of, uh, of the medical staff from the strength and conditioning staff to the scouting department to the, uh, to the coaching staff. And, and I actually came in with the coaching staff, uh, our, our first coaching staff with, with Chip, and then um, when the organization moved on, I was able to then move into, under, under kind of football operations directly with our, with our GM. And really that goes back to the experience of, of making yourself um, kind of a servant to the organization. Um, throughout my career, that's something that, uh, that I learned for sure. The more that you can be an asset to the organization, to the players, and, and identify where their shortfalls and, and really push those areas and attempt to solve those problems, um, then you, you become more valuable. And so uh, by doing that, that, was, that value is, only, is, is really only realized if you can move that information across all lines. And uh, so kind of like Phil was saying, everyone has their way of doing things and we all come from different backgrounds and all these things. Uh, so really that lies within the creative process of the staff. And so in that piece, I believe that and I, I don't always do this well, but I but I try. Is I never say no when a new when a staff member is bringing a new idea. It's always yes and yes and how can we draw that idea to more to, to more effectively benefit the organization? And then that creates the working relationships that people don't feel like you're destroying who they are as a professional or as a person. And uh, I feel like that, opening up those communication pathways, having those conversations, doesn't mean you're always gonna agree, but it's yes and. Where, where can we reach uh, uh, an area where we know that there's a specific problem set that we wanna solve? And how can we continue to refine that process? Um, that was another thing that I think that, um, in the development from from very early on, when you're when you're a young professional, you're pretty linear in your mindset. And uh, um, as you grow and you expand, you start to see that that the portfolio is much larger than just where your expertise is. So um, and and. That really, uh, the communication, filling those communication gaps with first starting with why, getting the doctors to understand why we want to do this, getting the athletic trainers and physical therapists why we want to do these things, how it's going to benefit the organization and them, make their job easier. And then transferring that to the strength conditioning department, nutrition, scouting department, how they can all feel as an how this, you know, like something that the scouts have always uh, had I think they're finding now is their contributions of all the write-ups they do on all the players they see. it doesn't just stop when the player walks in the door. Now their information is being pushed along. They're, they become part of the kind of the biometric passports that we create for the players. Their information is a part of that, and that information flow continues to uh, um, be built upon as the player comes into the door and then their life cycle throughout throughout their time with us.
1: Can you give us an example of something you've done specifically about injury prevention within the organization that you've changed that you've seen positive results from?
2: Uh, I think when you're looking um, from an injury prevention standpoint again it's multifactorial and uh, being able to uh, use all the expertise that's in the building to identify maybe where an athlete has some sort of risk factor or limiter within their physiology or their physical development or maybe it's their 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 mental uh, uh, mindset um, and and then as you identify those things and those things start in the scouting process so and that was that was a lot of po- a lot of Really really good information that had previously been left on the table and now we're able to use those things And then the next it's kind of easy to draw these conclusions with guys But then deploying the resources to the individuals so in a timely manner so that we can hopefully Kind of get on the front end of some of of an injury that potentially could happen to a guy or that would possibly make a guy more at risk um, obviously they don't have a crystal ball, I can't predict everything, but if we can mitigate some of those risks quickly um, and, and build that within their, the personalised development plan of the player, um, uh, I think that that's, that's at least we're going in the right direction.
1: And Phil, to you at the Spurs, what, what have you found from your experiences in soccer and rugby that you've been able to bring in that's had a positive effect?
3: Um, I mean, I think you guys have both touched on it and, Sh- and Sean explained it well, but it's you know, integration of all the different aspects of a club. I mean, firstly, integration within the high-performance unit, which is your sports scientists, your athletic development staff, and your medical staff, as you talked about, and yeah, metaphorically knocking down walls, but I mean, f- actually, physically, we knocked down walls at this purse between the training room and the weight room. You know, physically, I knocked down the wall to my office and we made a glass. So from my office, everyone in the weight room and everyone in the training room or the medical room can see into my office and I can see out. Um, And that physical step of making the staff be together improves integration of that staffing. Um, And that's the first step. The the second step is integrating that unit with scouts, with coaches, with managers, with general managers, with front office staff, because everyone contributes. the high performance group you know, as a whole is accountable for the physical performance of a team, and, and should be for injury rates, for players getting bigger, stronger, faster. But everyone actually shares the responsibility. You know, If your coaches aren't involved in the decision-making process that the high performance unit wants to do, if the general managers aren't involved, you won't have long-term success in those areas. Now, we're still accountable because it's particularly the leadership of, of the high performance group has to be the person to build those bridges and to integrate those, you know, the coaches and the scouts and the, the front office, and if, if we're not successful in integrating them, we're not gonna be successful in our outcomes, which is why we're accountable to the outcome, but they have to understand or we have to, to help them understand how much they contribute to those areas. You know, we, we look at injury prevention as you know, a pyramid you know, and all the parts of that pyramid are, are vital and, and they're all interconnected and one's not necessarily more important than another but you have to have sound building blocks for success. Now, the, the, the base of your injury prevention is your list management, is recruiting players to the club who are physically well suited to the game, the style, the players they're going to be playing with, you know, the, the technical and tactical changes that occur within a club, the social support network that will be around them at a club, the medical support network that will be around them at a club. And that's a very unique situation to every club. And GMs or head coaches when they're recruiting should have this in mind. That how when we bring this player from this club over to our club, you know, is he a guy who in our environment is likely to be a durable character? And there's lots of traits we can examine, you know, as professionals to give advice on that but if we're not getting the right players in, we're going to struggle. The second step for us is is load management, is every player in any sport has a level of stress or physical load they can cope with and a level of stress or physical load where they're going to break. We would love to be able to sit here and tell you that we know exactly what that level is, but we don't, no one does. Um, We've got an idea, we can use our expertise and our technologies and our data Um, and our our experience to try to find that level for each player and we can use our skills to try and increase and improve that level in each player, but we need to be at all times working with coaches to make sure they understand where that player is at right now because if they push that player beyond the limits of what they're physically able to cope with, they're likely to break down.
1: So interested in that, I I have a saying and I apologise to all the coaches in the room now. There's, There's two people that injure an athlete. One of them is the athlete themselves, whether that's contact, athlete to athlete, or the stupidity of overtraining. And the other one is the coach, from doing too much on the training park. That's for me, has always been a difficulty one, and yesterday we heard someone talk about, I don't understand your egg model, because it wasn't the data wasn't simulated at the right level to the athlete or to the coach. And obviously, we, there's difficulties when you move into different sports, you have different coaches, different changeovers, for me, it's been an art, and experience helps you along that way. How have you done that? For instance, you know, at the Spurs, you've gone in a, a very winning culture already, very successful coach. How have you been able to adjust? Um, and obviously, you're not going to win every battle, if it's a battle, but more to embrace someone who's probably never used technology before to affect that load principle.
3: Um, Give us I mean, some
1: ideas, and, and both of your, your experiences.
3: I mean, firstly, at the Spurs, where obviously I'm blessed with yeah, the, the management group we have. Everyone knows, you know, everyone knows RC. Everyone knows their reputation. And the fact that, that, that Sean Marks, when he was there as well with RC, they drove the process to bring us in and, and to create change in, in an already winning environment, which is difficult to do. Um, because, but, but that's the reason the Spurs have had success over such a long period, is they've had stability, which is vital but they've also never stagnated. They've also continued to evolve. And that doesn't happen if the coach, if Pop is not open to it. Now, everyone probably knows Pop. He's a legend. Um, he's strong. I mean, he's the leader, you know, and he's the boss. Um, so, but but he's open. And, and philosophically, before we got here, he was resting players from games, sure. you know, long before probably anyone else. And he was doing that off his own intuition. So he's open-minded to the concept that you have to manage loads. so When we came in, it was me sitting with him saying, firstly, I don't know anything about basketball, so I'm not here to tell you how to run a basketball team at all. You know? Um, I know a little bit about trying to manage uh, player loads and trying to develop players physically and keep them fit and healthy for you. Um, But my approach, and this is probably something that I've learnt and and I appreciated in the talk yesterday, the the terminology of strategic patience. It's okay, I can't go in on day one and say, we're gonna do all these things differently. Because they had won the championship three months before I arrived. So why would they change? So it's being slow in terms of, okay, let me see how you guys would do everything and how you've been so successful. Let me take the the knowledge and experience I have from different aspects and see where we can apply it, and let's try and apply it bit by bit. Um, and let's, you know, it takes, It's hard to be patient when you want to do a bunch of things all at once, because you've got all these things in my head about this is the best way to do it, um, when in actual fact it may not be the best way to do it for that particular situation. Um, and a few months in, it was. I was frustrated. I was thinking, you know what, I've been here a few months and I haven't actually done anything yet. Um, by the end of this season, you know, having two full seasons there, I feel like we've done a, a whole lot.
1: Can you, you give know? us an example of something that you've been able to influence the coach with to prevent injury?
3: Uh, I think it's been more systematic in terms of our load management. You know? And there's two approaches to that. One, and one I think that is nice for coaches to hear, is that a lot of the times we're trying to take load off players. You know, they might be overtraining, but sometimes they're undertraining. And it's nice for coaches to hear that we're not the stop guys. We're not there just to say, you can't let this guy train. Sometimes we're to say, you know what, this guy needs to train more. This guy needs to do more high speed work. This guy needs to do more change of direction work. So making the coaches understand, when I think Pop and our coaching staff understood that we were there sometimes to try to push, they appreciated that. Um, But also bringing the data or bringing our thoughts to them slowly over a period you know, and showing objective results of what we were doing. You know, so rather than, we want to do all these things, it's okay, we're going to do this. And then in a month's time, going back to them and saying, okay, we can, we can now measure that this particular player can jump higher off, off our force plates than what he did a month ago. So what we've done over this last month in terms of athletic development, in terms of managing his particular injury, and in terms of how you've managed the game loads, you know, has been successful for this particular player. So what we would like to do now is try and do this. And that step-by-step approach has allowed us to get to a point where, you know, and I mean, Pop's the boss and he makes every decision in the club, but he'll come to my office and sit there and say, right, how can we do this better for this particular player? I want this player to do this basketball movement better. What should we be doing differently? And that's a huge evolution in a, in a short space of time that we can have that conversation with him.
2: Sure. Just to add to that, I think a lot of that comes back to learning what the end state is of the coach. I mean, in, in football, injury is just part of the game. And that's the way a lot of the coaches look at it. And it's, it's um, the again, the last thing they want. And that's somewhat why sports science practices and and those things and the instrument of sports science has been slow to adopt be adopted by by coaches in america is because they're looked at as i don't need some guy telling me to stop i want a tough team that plays a physical brand of football and 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 i don't want i don't want an out for the players i don't want to give the players any kind of reason for them to get an out
1: but in the same breath if you haven't got your superstars on the pitch or on the court the coach is probably going to get fired because yeah, so, they're not going to so
2: perform. so to me, that's where it goes back, again, looking where, where's the end state? What, what, is the, what is the coach? If you start off murky in that area, then you're, you may be both going in two different directions and you're both going to be dissatisfied. Sure. Uh, so I think <clears throat> first is establishing that. And it may not be what you want to hear initially, but now in, in communication, there's a sender and there's a receiver. And uh, so he may not, may not uh, receive your message first time around. So again, that using patience there. And then, uh, then to me, it's how you frame that opportunity. It's not about, we need to pull back here or there. It's really opening up. There's a window of opportunity for the player to push in this direction, but this window over here is closed. And so that's what coaches want to hear. We're, what what direction can I go, and and how can I really maximize our training? So to me, it's more about don't don't come with the problem. Only spend five five percent of the time on the problem. Send, spend ninety five percent of the time on the solution. And I think this is one of the things that, from a performance standpoint, uh, a lot of, you know, athletic trainers and and performance specialists and 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 those guys don't always realize that. GMs and coaches' portfolios pretty wide. It's a lot bigger than just your little space, you know. So um, again, uh, bringing them solutions is going to help with the advancement of getting the, the the program to run in the direction you want. And then again, bringing the feedback loop to them to show that by these inc- incremental changes, this is what we made. And and as an example of that, the the load metric itself, or however you want to quantify that, is um, uh, that can be elusive, and how it's how it's presented to the coaches. The coaches know that they want to get to the, the guys to a, a specific capacity, and so now you start the education process of how to acutely load players and progressively load them to to get into that chronically load state where, where again, now you can start to identify, is this player training too hard or is he training uh, uh, too little? And, and, and that's the thing like, uh, um, we, the point of training is to push them beyond their limits. Uh, and I think that those are some things that uh, I see that that's where the education process needs to happen. Is is really how do I ac- acutely load individuals in a smart way to actually maximize uh, uh, where they could potentially be um, against what you know the average coach would do the first day of camp, blow the whistle, and we crush them the first three days. Yeah. You know.
1: Yeah. Can you give us an example, especially talking about preseason, because we all know that that's obviously an area where a lot of injuries, soft tissue injuries, occur. Yeah. And I think as the science and the technologies come into play, and as you say, the relationships with coaches and the openness that franchises like yourselves have, those are
2: slowly reducing. So so, so for us, like uh, the first year, you know, that was my first year being in the NFL, and, and, and a lot of the staff that, that came with us, uh, I came from a military background, and then, and then a lot of the other uh, coaches came from college. and. Um, so in the off-season, you're basically allowed, like, this time of year is on-field training sessions, which is, they're about two hours. Uh, it's really an equivalent to a regular practice once we get into the year. And you can have three of those a week, and then you have only one where there's, you're only on the field for an hour, and, and you, uh, um, you really can't have any competition during that time. And so the first year that we were there we had kind of the the hour training session on Monday and then we had three hard sessions Tuesday Wednesday Thursday uh, in the NFL it's Friday Saturday Sunday is kind of a uh, uh, unwritten rule but you give the players off those three days so we went four days straight in the offseason the following season what we did is we went um, Monday Tuesday the two hard days we put the easy day on the uh, Wednesday and then we came back and finished the week in a hard session. And coach really like, he always wanted to finish, you know, hard session last day of the week and everything. And we showed over that the exact same practice time access that we, we actually got more work done by allowing that, putting, putting in that recovery day in between or you know, the lower level day. So it's, it seems simple. Um, but then giving them that feedback loop, see, we, we're not the no guys, we're actually giving you more opportunities to get more work out of these guys. Uh, um, so that, you know, that's a, just a, an easy example of, of we had to execute some patients there, wait for the next year, uh, get them to understand and buy into it and then execute it and then give them the feedback loop and then that helps open up for other opportunities if we wanted to you know make, make uh, movements in other directions.
1: Talking about the combine and uh, some of the events that occur at different combines um, and the fact that it's very orthopedic surgeon driven when you're recruiting players. How much of input do both of you have in that recruitment process? So Phil you talked about the right type of player for your team um, but from a injury point of view, I've been in situations where players have had horrendous past medical histories, they're getting old, and they go, don't worry, Dave will fix them. Dave's team will sort them out. And you're looking at them thinking, well, they're the two factors that we do know scientifically that are the worst things to reoccurrence of injury. So, and I also found that in my experiences, I wasn't necessarily involved in the draft process, where I felt that that was always an area that we should be more involved with.
3: Yeah, from The draft process is new to me, we don't have it in Australia or in European sports, so um, we're we're pretty involved. Actually, I would say we're very involved. That's from the moment we finished our season, which was unfortunately two weeks earlier than what we'd hoped, um, I became full-time looking at draft players. and we, uh, We obviously take the draft combine data But we will have, like probably every NBA team, 70 players come to our facility and spend time at our facility where we will assess them medically, assess them physically. The scouts will have a look at them, play on court.
1: you think that's Um, a lot more important than just the combined data?
3: uh, Personally, Miles. Yeah. I mean, the combined data taken on its own out of context. I mean, I think the, the historical... Way that would have worked is you know, coach, coaches, scouts decide the players they want. You know, they have a scan of the combine data, and then they ask a a doctor, should you know, is this player fit? Now, doctors and orthopedic surgeons, and physios, you know, anyone for that matter, they can have great skills and great knowledge base. But taking any of those things out of context and just giving them a piece of information on its own is setting them up to fail. I mean, you need to look at that player. You need to interrogate that player's history. Well, they've had these injuries. Why have they had them? Let's speak to their athletic trainer. Let's speak to their old strength coach. Let's look at their history over five years. Let's get them here. Let's look, do they have any modifiable risk factors that might lead to recurrence? Or do they have factors that are not modifiable? And be honest about saying, we, we can't change that yeah. in this player. Um, and then let's make sure that that information is getting imparted to coaches and to GMs. Now we should never lead the recruitment process. That's coach-driven, scout-driven to get the best players for your club. But the input that the high-performance unit can give is really valuable. But it's only valuable if it's taken on board and, and included. You know, I came from a scout a, a draft meeting yesterday where you know we're heavily involved in the discussion of every player. Um, and even more so this year than last year, which I guess is you know, we're, we're further integrated into the club, which is a great sign for us. But um, for me to get invited into a, a coach's meeting where we're talking about free agents and we're going through our list of players and what we want to do. Now, yeah, I don't contribute a hell of a lot to that meeting. It's coach driven and it's coach information, but I'm in, I, I'm in the conversation and I'm comfortable to put forward an opinion based on the, the physical durability or the physical level of any particular player yeah. in our list and free agents we're considering, and in the draft prospects we want to bring through and look at. And I think everyone in our organisation, and again, I'm very lucky with the, the management staff we have, is very driven to make us an even bigger part of that, yeah. and, and that's great but I'm going to that saying, that's great, but we don't want to lead that. You know, that's, that's not our decision to make. You know, we want to be involved. We want to give you as much information as you can. But at the end of the day, I might say, this guy is not a good bet injury-wise. He's had X problem, Y problem. We tested this. We can show that. These are all bad signs for his likely durability. Mm. But a coach might say, you know what? We're, we're drafting at the bottom of the draft this guy's got a lot of talent, yeah, we're going to take him. And I say, well, yeah, let's take him. But as long as you understand you're taking sure. a gamble on that player, sure. you know, then, and then we share the responsibility when injury rate for that player is not good. You know, everyone was aware that player was a risk. It's a coach's decision to say that's a risk worth taking because the, the qualities he might give us. I mean, we can pick someone else who's the fittest player there, but he's not as good, and therefore you know, if you're one of the leading teams, he's never going to play. He's never going to contribute. You'll be a great fit player who makes your stats look fantastic. doesn't help the team in any way. You know, it's more important to get someone who helps the team, so that's why it's a coach decision.
1: Sean, tell us a little bit how it operates in the NFL.
2: Yeah, um, again, I think uh, as, as the relationships continue to grow within the organization, uh, now it, my role has expanded a lot in that area. I mean, I probably look at between 250 and 300 guys during the combine area, and uh, that's from, uh, from some of the medical testing data to uh, really watching film and seeing if there's any, if there's any pathological issues that, would, that show up consistently consistency consistently in the player that would indicate th- this player's medical history is this and he has movement discrepancies when he's executing the sport that could potentially compromise him in the future and uh, I think again there's uh, uh, I wouldn't say that we lead the, uh, the the scouting process or anything like that but we're definitely a component within it that is uh that's valued, and and kind of like what Phil was saying. I, I feel I always feel comfortable that my voice is going to be heard. It doesn't mean I'm always going to be obeyed, and that doesn't and I'm not expecting that. You know, if we do because there a lot of times like what he was talking about, there's opportunity in in free agents and guys that have had injury histories that you can get those guys at a at, at a uh, um, really good value, and so you take chances on some of those guys and and i think that if we put caps on a lot of these uh guys with really not as much as you scout them and you talk to all these different people and do these tests until they get into your building and you start working with them um you really don't have a you know a good answer of how they're going to respond and uh and and if we did then we wouldn't even have to play the game we would already know who's going to win you know so uh so i think that that's um, it's, it's definitely been uh, a growing process in, in, my, um, in, in, in my capacity there. Um, one of the things that, I guess, leaning back uh, on some of the things that I picked up th- from the military, because like I said, when we're creating these networks and people feel, you try and make people feel comfortable with, uh, with their voice, one of the things that can kind of shut that down is when people start getting outside of their expertise. And so that's something that uh, in the military they call that mission creep. It's when you're starting to creep into other people's area of expertise. And so that's something that uh, anyone from our staff or myself included, that we make sure that whatever we're commenting, it's physically oriented. It's, we're not commenting on any of their skill sets or anything like that. It's within our realm.
3: That, that's a that's a really important point, and if it, it's not so relevant for me right now because really my knowledge of basketball is not enough to contribute. But when I'm in a football team, it's easy to get sidetracked into oh I like this player as a player. Sure. When yeah that's a conversation for me to have with my mates at the pub. It's not a conversation for me to have with the head coach yeah. who's looking to buy a player. You know, my conversation is this hamstring is no good.
1: Sure. You know. And lastly. Technology, you know, software, hardware, you know, sleep watches, GPS, accelerometry, gyroscopes, all the things that well, we must have this because someone else is using it and this is going to make us better. And tell us, I think you've got a lot of experience around using these data points and hardware and software, but there's been this massive explosion now that everyone needs to have this and then it's a new something else and something else. And this is going to improve you. Tell us about the pitfalls. Cause we, you know, we've all been there and we realized, I think, over the years that it's not as simple as just getting that information and putting it on someone and using a nice dashboard platform and that's it, we're good to go.
3: I think it's, the technology advancements have been fantastic for our profession, you know, without a doubt. And it, there's huge benefits. And I can talk through some of the examples of the benefits. Um, but there's also huge pitfalls. You know, bad data leads to bad decision making. So um, any data that, that we want to use, any technology uh, that's producing something, you know, first and foremost, we've got to understand that it's, it's reliable in terms of it's going to produce the same result if the same aspect actually happened, that it's valid, that what it's telling us is truly what it's telling, what they're telling it, you know, they're saying about it.
1: And what have you, what have you done internally? Because that's obviously very difficult, because sometimes you, know, you don't have the time. To internally look at, say, the coefficient of variance of this GPS well, system, I mean that's, or...
3: that's one of the things that we're doing. Right. You know, I mean, we use um, you know load monitors, so we use uh, a system to uh, an accelerometry system, you know, which is the same as the GPS system, but you know, we're indoors, so we use the accelerometry component, um, and there's there's good published data on the reliability of those units. But we are testing them again ourselves, and we're lucky we have the resources to do that. But the process is slow, so we've been using them for two years, and we've just finishing our investigation of the pure reliability of our ones. Um, But you know, I think the key to using it is that you can't allow, and, and this again was mentioned yesterday. You can't allow any of the technology we use to make a decision. You know, it's all there. To contribute to the, the decision-making process, not to make the decision for you. And it's it's one of my pet hates when a coach says, "What does the data say?" Because the data doesn't say anything. I don't say that to the coach. I just tell him what I want to, the point I want to make, you know. But the coach, yeah, the data gives us information that we combine with our understanding and our our history and and what the coaches think and what the scouts think and what the doctor thinks. And from that, we make an an educated decision about what a risk level is of this player. You know, but if we were to say, you know, when, when we use the, the load data, for instance, you know, if you want to look at how many high intensity or how many meters at high speed a particular player did in the game, now that gives you a, a number. And we can put flags on those numbers. Okay, if that's gone up by 1.2 standard deviations, it's a yellow flag. If it's gone up by two standard deviations, it's a red flag. But what we have to understand is when you see that yellow or red flag is there is probably some error in the measurement you took. You know, there is probably some error in how you've interpreted that measurement. Yeah. And so now the error is quite large. So by a player going for twenty minutes and they're fine and then twenty one minutes all of a sudden you put a flag up and say this is a yellow flag, we have to understand it's not as accurate as that. We know that somewhere in this period, in this continuum, they're now at a level where we're starting to worry about them. And then as they get further into that continuum, we're getting more worried. And when you combine that with that player's history and and what we know about that player and what we know about what a coach wants from that player moving forward, then we have the conversation with the player, with the coach. We're a little bit worried about this.
1: I think the difficulty is, for any people from leagues here, is that the most important data points, if they are accurate or not, is the game. And there's a lot of leagues still, uh, I know the NFL are now doing something, but the NBA quite aren't, aren't quite there yet with the foot. I know the D leagues are using them. But without actually having the actual data from the actual game that they play, it's very difficult then to simulate because you're only simulating from actually training.
3: Well, we get, uh, the NBA has a camera yeah. monitoring system, and we get good information from that. And do you but have that dir- in your training not, no, facility? No, it's not directly comparable yeah. to what we do at practice, yeah. because at, at practice we use the portable you know, accelerometry units. So we can't say what you did here in practice is objectively exactly the same as what you did in the game. The, the distinction point for us, I guess, is in, in the training camp and in pre-season, it's all the data that we collect, and that's how we're monitoring loads. Once we get to in-season, it's all the data we get from the camera system, because training training loads, become minuscule compared to game loads within the season in the NBA. Yeah. So in an ideal world, we would have the same system, yeah. but we have to make that change where you know, even our reports and our graphs are totally different from this is training camp work. Okay, now we're in season, we're only looking at game loads.